0: Just before we jump into the episode, you have a chance to win a gift card from the nonprofit Outdoor Learning Store by subscribing to Talking with Green Teachers on your preferred app. All you have to do is email Ian, that's Ian, at greenteacher.com with I subscribed to TWGT, and we'll enter your name into the draw, which goes on January 21st, 2022. Good luck!
1: That's the other thing. If you can find shiny stuff, shiny stuff always goes down well. (laughs) (laughs) I like shiny things. Uh, And I give them four that are almost identical. And they have to really work hard with their fingers, with their sense of touch. Of Like, okay, where was that ridge? What shape were those bands?
0: Mic drop. (laughs) So that's why I asked I about it. that, because the joke doesn't work if you pronounce it Nice like the city in oh, southern France.
1: Yeah, maybe I need to I need to change it up so that I can steal some of your jokes. They're everywhere here and they all line up together, and nobody in the scientific world can make a consensus on how they are formed. And this is the Drumlin drama.
0: Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian.
2: And I'm Sophia.
0: And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers.
2: This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode,
1: stories and these legacies really can engage that audience. And I think, yeah, that's the biggest things uh, about rocks that I love, despite the fact, yeah, they don't move and they don't shout and they don't do a little dance. They are so appealing through different layers of complexity to different ages. And just, yeah, teach about rocks because they rock.
2: boots and a bottle of water, we're heading outside, and today we're focusing on the land, as in the ground beneath our feet, the bedrock. Even though it's been here for a while, like a billion years or so, it hasn't changed much, not to our eyes, at least. rain lies one of the central challenges of exploring rocks and geology. Jade Harvey Beryl is not only familiar with this challenge as a rock enthusiast, she embraces it. Jade is the outreach and events manager with the nonprofit Outdoor Learning Store and Take Me Outside, as well as the owner of Stoked on Science. She also co-hosts the Earthy Chats podcast with Ian, whom she joined to discuss bringing geology to life, conceiving of deep time, and her thoughts on the unresolved drama surrounding the formation of drumlings.
0: So one of the activities that you do is rock climbing, one of the many activities, and we are going to be talking about rocks today. And just before listeners who are like, oh, forget this, and before you turn this off, yes, we recognize (laughs) that rocks don't do stuff, usually, that we can see. So if you're doing land-based learning and you're looking at animals, they're animate and they're Even when they're asleep, they're breathing or they they move around. And plants, though they're not animate, they change throughout the season. Fungi sometimes just pop up overnight after a heavy rain and then the fruiting bodies are gone. So a lot of the species or life forms that we study and observe in nature with land-based learning have that built-in liveliness, you could call it. Whereas rocks and the geological underpinnings of all of that life, they don't typically have observable changes within our lifetimes at all. So we always like to talk about big questions. And one of the big questions we're going to talk about is when you're doing outdoor experiential land-based learning and you're teaching about geology, which is the foundation of everything, literally and figuratively, how do you make rocks interesting? Open-ended (laughs) question.
1: And go. Um, well, you have to be very careful not to allow me to nerd off in to sort of well, hours fair. and hours of, of how exciting rocks are. But you're right. When you're out there and you're looking at inanimate objects, it is a different thing to engage with something where its history is is hidden within it, or in the creases, or the shapes, or the colours. That's where all of the information is. And I think really just diving in to history and into story and connecting story to, to, to rocks and to these inanimate objects is really like how you can, can create. And it is difficult, um, especially with ones, with you know, kindergartners, grade three, fours, whatever, mm. to connect um, like the geological time scale. Uh, <laughs> You know, they can barely, I, you know, in my thing, I was like, it's even, you know, the earth, I talk about how old is the earth? I'm like, it's, it's much older than even, even your great, 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 great grandma. And they sort of like start doing that. And then I try and show the number of, you know, 4.6 billion with all these zeros, and, you know, we talk about the fact that an average human lives a hundred years and there's some sort of things clicking and, and doing things. But before I go out into the field um, and actually you can do this with a printout, but I um I prefer to do it um, on a big screen Um, is I use the piano timescale. And Richard Dawkins did this. He, he just played an actual piano and talked about it. But basically every key is like a hundred million years. And you uh, start at the beginning and then you you. On my screen, I have like a purple mustache that appears and it's just about halfway up. Imagine in front of you the standard keyboard of a standard piano, it's got 88 keys. And you just boom, mustache pops up. And I say to the kids, okay, what was alive when the mustache was there? And, you know, we talk about options, things come out dinosaurs, um, you know, monkeys, all these different answers come out. And, you know, half of the keyboard, the only things that were alive when that mustache pops up is bacteria. And you show a yeah. a microscope, a picture of microscopic bacteria blown up and they're like, whoa, for half of the life of our Earth, our planet, our giant rock in space, there's been nothing but single cell bacteria. And, and it progresses and it goes through and we get the fish and we get the, the amphibians and then we move and the final one is, um, it's a a line that's a couple mil thick, uh, just at the end of the last key, the closest key to the sort of right hand side, if you're looking at the piano, and that's humans, you know, we are insignificant in this, this history scale, so that's where I start, is trying to get, you know, this sort of idea of, of temporal scale that exists way beyond us, and it's, um, I quite like it, because it's sort of, they have to think outside of the their sort of direct influence and I find it's quite good for their sort of critical and sort of abstract thinking so that's where I start anyway
0: and even if they don't play the piano or haven't taken piano lessons they've probably been exposed to it in school or at home so it's something relatively relatable They've certainly seen pianos around now. Do you use the the accidental keys, like the the sharps and flats, or do you just stick to the the whole tones? Speaking in music parlors? yes Yeah. Oh,
1: you are very musical. Uh, yeah. It's mainly just the the whole tones, just the white keys. Right. Uh, and the line starts, and I and I should say, you know, like it's a, it's on a PowerPoint or whatever a slideshow, and there's a red line that starts, and it says this is the beginning of Earth, and then a line at the end says this is now so they do get that initial boom like okay that means down there means that the beginning of of earth itself and over here we have this and yeah just the white keys just in and the the idea is just to talk about you know evolution over time of what's changed and that's yeah that's where i start i could yeah could go on for hours about this
0: oh absolutely What always strikes me whenever I've done that sort of exercise, I've, I've never used a piano and I, I love that idea. I mean, I've, I've done something that I think a lot of interpreters have done is compressed the entire history of the earth. So 4.6 billion years into a calendar year because, it, you know, calendar year, you can actually go day by day. Now, I think I actually made a mistake when I did this. I calculated at base. I rounded to the nearest 0.5. So 4.5 billion years. But, you know, what's an extra 100 million years? I mean, yeah, drop in the bucket. But what struck me is i think for a lot of kids they think old ancient dinosaurs and that is true but roughly speaking the dinosaurs ruled the age of the dinosaurs up to about 66 million years ago was up to the third week of december putting everything together into a calendar year. So, you know, thinking about it in the piano, you're up into those really high-pitched keys that, you know, certainly no human can even imagine producing with their voice. So that, I think, really puts things into perspective and gets people thinking about, like, how old a billion is. Like, I don't don't know if I can even envision what a billion means, like nine zeros. Like, do you have any particular tools for getting people to even start to envision what what it feels like what just embodying a billion
1: and and you're quite right it's quite visceral it's i mean when you start to think about it, it it does sort of get you in your gut this sort of infinitesimal nature of of being a human and we don't want to scare them because it's it's a bit out there but yes like dinosaurs really aren't that old in the grand scheme of things really and they're very interesting but there's lots of other interesting things that that predated them you know but one of the things I do and this works um again from all the way up to sort of you know end of school grade 11 12s um is a geological timeline walk and i can you know drop uh, some links to some things that can make this work but i just have like a bunch of cards and you start at um 0 meters and that is 4.6 billion years and then you um take a certain number of steps and you get to the next stage it's like oh okay this is when um molten rock solidified or this is when we start to see water liquid water for the first time uh, and this is when we start to see bacteria and this is when we start to see you know multi-cell bacteria and it and it progresses and basically each of the cards says okay we start here and we do 47 steps and what's interesting is by the time you get up to December for you or you know the sort of dinosaurs to us um you're taking you know like millimeter steps Mm. because the rapidity of change and development has been so incredibly exponential once yeah complex life happened uh that it starts to to get really exciting towards the end of the walk at the beginning they take like long like 47 steps uh before anything happens Uh, but it's a (laughs) nice way (laughs) and the kids are like what are we doing like we're going for a walk um and i like have the cards and um i get the kids to read them out so i printed a bunch of cards um laminated them and then you get a different kid to speak about what's going on at each stage and we you know there's room for discussion if you've got some of the older ones. Um if you know at the very least you're taking them for a walk and it's about a kilometer all in. Once okay you've so around. not nothing at all. No 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 yeah. it's decent and yeah. you could scale it if you you know you could scale it yeah quite easily there's like a diagram in one of the things which tells you how you could scale it. You can also do it with a toilet roll. Um, where you lay out a toilet roll in sheets and you end up you know, cutting them out. But I, I mean, I don't necessarily like the waste of that, but that is another option if you don't have space. Maybe you've only got a schoolyard uh, or you could do laps of the schoolyard. But I think just, yeah, then moving their bodies through time and space in that short way can give them a, a reflection of what that time and space is on, on the representative scale. And I really enjoy that. It goes down well every time I do it.
0: I think what also is great about doing that outside is you have the opportunity to observe things that you talk about on the timeline. So like where I'm based in the southeastern part of Ontario, we are on top of limestone bedrock, which is on top of the ultimate Precambrian shield rock, which is much farther down below. So it's, we're surrounded by limestone. So I could envision doing this along a rocky beach say where I live and when we get to say the Ordovician period like 450 million years ago pick up one of these rocks many of which have fossils in them of trilobites and crinoids and you know really cool I mean who doesn't like collecting fossils and be like so this rock right here this is about the spot on our walking timeline where these rocks started to form or this fossil you know this slow moving trilobite that kind of looks like a horseshoe crab It's at this stage in our walk when it would have been roving around when this was all covered in a shallow sea. Or, hey, there's a frog. This is when amphibians showed up or, you know, a bird flies over. Like, there's so much opportunity doing it outdoors and, you know, preaching to the choir. Outdoor learning is great. (laughs) Surprise, surprise.
2: (laughs) Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. So, this Precambrian bedrock is a billion years old or so. Or so. That or so might be tens of millions of years. And we think the last ice age was a
1: long time ago.
0: Have you ever had those sorts of magic moments where you're like, by the way, this pine cone that we're looking at right now, or whatever?
1: Oh, yes. So many, so many. I to even mention I mean where I am I'm in the interior of BC so we have this amazingly complex geological history that's really different um in if you just we've got like three mountain ranges in the Columbia mountains right with the Selkirk's the Monashies and the Purcells that are sort of like a triangle around us and then you've got the Rocky Mountain Trench and then the Rocky Mountains where Banff and all that jazz are and you know firstly I should just say like place-based education is so important like these big grand ideas about the world itself our earth our planet are incredible but I love when you make it place-based when you make it specific to where kids are and like you say giving examples giving physical things now for us we've got Yoho National Park about 45 minute drive um, where we of course we have like the Burgess Shale you know um, 500 million years old there we've got trilobites um we've got all kinds of other and it's because it's this really carbon rich uh rock it's preserved the soft parts of these ancient uh, sea creatures really? and so yes yeah it's in. i mean like, i can't even it's the, the the detail in these and then they have an understanding of and be able to do these 3d reconstructions which oh my gosh i could just there's there's so much i mean firstly I've told you before about my dad, like he builds um, 3D technology and he did some work for a couple of different museums where they took fossilized sea creatures and brought them back to life in these 3D movies. So I'm very fortunate that I have access to a couple of these from several hundred million years ago that show these shallow seas. You see this picture of this fossil, um, for example, like Dunkleosteus, it's like this big armoured, thing from 300 million years ago. And uh, you see the fossil, an actual picture of it. And then it like you can't see, I'm doing like this racing thing and the water comes up and it transforms into what a 3D recreation of what it is. And it's swimming around. And then you see in the background, some of these trilobites and other sort of very weird fish slash insects looking things floating yeah. around. And yeah, the history here is that we have two to four billion year old rocks that were laid down in a shallow sea the earth is basically a giant puzzle piece puzzle right made up of lots of different pieces the crust the bit we live on is between seven and a hundred kilometers thick Uh, and these puzzle pieces uh, sort of very slowly move around on the mantle which is this sort of semi-liquid semi iron metal rich sort of floating thick magma It's the best kind of simple explanation, right? Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, because you're very knowledgeable. No,
0: I I think that's very well explained.
1: And then, so when these massive puzzle pieces, so imagine these puzzle pieces, you know, cover uh, like the entirety of Europe, one of them, for example. When they move against each other, you know, if they rub side to side, that's where we get earthquakes. Uh, And what's happened where we are, uh, is the North American plate, which, believe it or not, is underneath the continent of North America, um, is hitting the Pacific plate, which is underneath the Pacific Ocean. So once all of the landmasses of Earth like a couple of hundred million years ago were in one giant landmass, the supercontinent, or Pangaea, and then they all started spreading out. And what happened was North America hit the Pacific plate here, and uh, the Pacific plate is oceanic crust, and underneath the land is this continental crust, and the Pacific plate dove underneath. Um, it's, it's more dense. The land came over, the ocean went down, and you get this massive uh, joint, a subduction zone. The subduction means the plate is being eaten underneath the other plate. And anyway, this is where we get mountain forming. This is where orogenesis, the fancy word for mountain is happens, and that's where we have um, the coastal mountains on the west coast of uh, British Columbia. Now, if you try to think about these like thousands of kilometres of, of mass pushing together, the way I like to think of where we, the Columbias and the Rocky Mountains, happened, I don't know if you've ever um, had a hardwood floor with a rug on it. Um, I'm on one you...
0: right now like my feet are touching the uh, rug okay. which is on top of a hardwood floor uh, so you, you have the clairvoyance okay, I'm, hoping... I'm impressed.
1: <laughs> okay so if you ever if you put your foot onto the edge of the rug yep. and push uh, and create friction um what happens is that bit of the rug stays flat against the ground but further into the rug you'll see a little bubble happen right you push the rug and then you get a little lift further away from you well that's how our mountains were created sometimes mountains happen when at a plate boundary where they're basically being smashed together and the rocks have to go up into the sky but where we are is was different the collision was happening out on the coast we're six or seven hours drive in. Well, there were cars happening, you know, 200 million years ago. Yeah, no, uh, not, you know, and um, yeah, so you push the edge of the rug and the bubble happens inland and that's how the Columbia Mountains were formed. And what's amazing is even in the, each of these three different mountain ranges, slightly different stuff happened. So we had sedimentary rock that was laid down in these shallow seas. Basically, sedimentary rock is just the detritus of dead stuff living in the ocean right so and this i love kids love this they love thinking about dead things falling to the bottom of the <laughs> sea getting layered and layered and layered and layered until the heat and pressure turns them into stone um i think i do like a running around game as well where i get them um uh to be floating sea sediment and then they have to freeze and then i uh, you know not anymore but we used to get kids to pile up and and do things, you know, but
0: it's
1: at the moment, pre-COVID. But anyway, I guess I should finish my historical story. But so I'm telling this to kids, right? I'm I'm, I'm standing in front of an exposed rock face and I'm telling this story about how underneath there were all these dead fossil fossilized fish, but then the heat and the pressure changed it. And where you have sandstone, anytime you feel a gritty stone, right? That feels like sand, it was laid down in a sea then it turns with heat and pressure to quartzite and we have huge amounts of quartz here. And you know, fun fact, like quartz um, was used in watch faces for the longest time um, because the resonance, the, the crystal itself creates a resonance that keeps uh, the ticking hands stable so that it continues to tick a second if you have a, an analog watch right. and the kids are like oh cool even though most of them don't have watches anymore um <laughs> okay, so it's odd, but yeah we have that sedimentary history, and then we have the igneous history we have where this land was being sort of wrenched apart we had these gaps and we had igneous or uh, volcanic rock come up and then that got heat and pressures and changed into granite or nice which is you know what most people's or a lot of people's kitchen sides are made of kitchen countertops mm-hmm. and I, then I try and connect it to things that they have in their house um I'm doing that thing where I um, go on a weird ramble but I'm, I'm I'm in my mind I'm standing in the forest clearing uh, that's just behind the school we have this exposed rock face uh, and this is what I'm doing. Um, And yeah, that's where it starts. It starts with a physical look at at the, or the telling of the history. And then we start to dive into the different types of rocks and what's inside them.
0: It's so, I think, profound that if you were to say, do like word association and say, I'm gonna say a word and you're gonna pick something from nature that represents it. So if you throw out the word stability, probably a good number of people are going to say rock or mountain and it's the instability of these things that for a human from a human perspective represents stability it's their instability that is so foundational to all of the processes we have i mean the geology affects the type of soil and the type of forest and then the type of animals that are in it and if you could set up a time-lapse camera over a billion and a half years say it, it would be wow look at the mountain or Genesis, the mountains rise and then the mountains fall in erosion and, and it would be stunning. And I've seen reproductions of this. And I think even Bill Nye the Science Guy did something like this with plasticine or I think actually he used cookies to demonstrate subduction like you were describing. Oh. But it's still kind of hard to imagine it. Even for those of us like you and me who do outdoor land-based learning, you know, seeing is believing. It's like, yes, I, I get that the rocks have done all of this but there's still a part of me not that I doubt it but there's still a part of me that just can't imagine it do you know what I don't know maybe that doesn't make any sense
1: no it does it really does and I think one way I try and 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 help them imagine it and this does realistically uh work mostly if you have an area with some rock and water um so where we live we are know i live in the valley bottom with the Monashies on one side and the selkirk mountains on the other Mm. and so we go to a place that is uh, at the base of the Monashies. It's the bottom of a a mountain called mount begby huge quartzite there's lots of garnet and other like very um precious minerals and and gems you know as we'd call Mm. them that they're in this mountain that's the other thing if you can find shiny stuff shiny stuff always goes down well I like shiny things oh, yeah. um getting the kids so i'd send them out on a scavenger hunt find me something sparkly find me something shiny find me something that's a rock with a different color in it it's a good way to like get them switched on but okay so we start at the rock face and we feel it and often quartzite sandstone whatever rock you've got you're gonna have on a face a uh, sharp um you know quite lots of edges um and yeah it's gonna feel you know, quite rough. And then I like to walk them down if you have got a creek and it ends up like we luckily have uh, on a beach with the Columbia River. And the Columbia River is flowing, you know, down from on high in the mountains. And we have all these tributary rivers who are bringing uh, down from like Glacier National Park from Rogers Pass. But anyway, we have beaches that are full of these rocks that have been weathered or broken down from these big mountains and what we see there is these beautiful smooth pebbles of all different sizes and different colors and then when we get to the beach I do a rock sorting exercise I have also gone and collected a bunch of rocks and me being me have collected rocks from all different locations across North America only where it was allowed and only
0: right not national parks <laughs>
1: <laughs> no national parks um and i put them in bags and i give each kid a, a big piece of green card or i do this in the field on the beach i get them to find a stick as long as their arm uh, and find four of them in their groups so that's a good way to warm them up as well and then we create a frame or in classroom you have a card and i dump the rocks if they're using the frame in nature they just use whatever is inside that frame And then I say, okay, I'm setting a timer for two minutes. I want you to sort the rocks either in your pile or inside your frame. And they sort of look at you a bit funny. And here's when you can then go group to group. You start having a discussion about what, how to characterize things, right? This is where science, we're turning them into scientists. I've done this with five-year-olds. I've done this with Uh 18-year-olds and it works both different times. Uh, And, you know, they often do it by color or they do it by size and then, um, they do one round and then I, t- I ask them what's the names of their different categories. And then they're like, if they've done it by size, they're like, okay, massive, large, medium, tiny dust. And then I ask them to repeat it and we do like three or four rounds. So they get past size, they get past color. And then they're like, ah, what do I do? And then we start to talk about texture. And then we talk about the difference between say sedimentary rock, which has these very fine banded layers to something that's metamorphic, meaning change, which has once was maybe sedimentary and now has these wavy ribbons of sparkly colour, which is one of the sort of defining features of a metamorphic rock. And you know then that that has been through incredible heat and pressure changes. And we just start to get this discussion about where are these rocks and then I'm like, so oh, where did the rocks come from? and then we talk about mountains and we talk about weathering and we talk about transport and deposition. Then we start to talk about where are these rocks going to go after here? What's going to happen to them? Yeah,
0: the next step.
1: Right. And then you talked about soil. Soil comes from rocks. And yeah. And then, you know, I do have a couple of, they're not really that expensive like 40 bucks. You can buy these little miniature soil augers that a kid can turn by hand. And then we go into the forest and we do a little soil, uh, sample and look at stratigraphy and we look at the fact that where we are we have podsolic soils which are specifically made from like glacial sediments uh, that have been broken down from from rocks that have been glaciated and it's quite shallow but we have this really obvious orange a horizon the a horizons or just the one at the top that comes from these iron rich rocks and and then it goes brown and it's like even that that visual representation is just like pew! I watch the little minds blown, and it makes
0: my heart happy. That's what it's all about. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles? The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 120 of those and counting. To save you time, because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit.
2: Let's get down on our hands and knees. If anyone's wearing shorts, they might want to use a seed pad. Because this coarse terrain is pretty rough on the knees.
0: One of the big things that just struck me as you're describing this is the ability to bring in different senses. And this is one of the foundational aspects of outdoor experiential learning is try to use as many senses as possible and it taste is a tough one with geology. Not impossible. I mean limestone tastes different from quartz. But yes, less... and
1: if you have hay light and it tastes salty, that's great. But right. we don't yet yeah, encourage the kids. I mean, hay is quite difficult to find here, much more in sort of desert areas. But you also tend, yeah, not to encourage kids to eat things in the wilderness. Um, generally but you're, speaking. but you're, yeah, generally speaking. But you're right. The other senses are very important to engage.
0: Yeah, like sense of touch. You talked about stone that's been broken off and is very rough to the touch in comparison to stones that are in a river a a big river like the columbia that have been smoothed down and you see this like where i am on lake ontario it's smooth rocks from the waves of lake ontario that's readily observable not just with your eyes but with that sense of touch so that's that's certainly something that i think can kind of bring rocks more into their lives as well because i'm always looking for ways to engage the senses maybe even hearing you know, what does it sound like? Maybe you, you have a, a stick or something and you rub that against the rough rocks and then rub that against the smooth rocks and it's going to sound different. Or what? how you step over it is going to sound different. You know, stepping with bare feet on jagged rocks is going to feel a lot different from stepping on smooth down limestone. Maybe you want to test that yourself, not get a young child to step over really rough, you know, quartz or, n- niece. Niece or nice, nice are nice. This is a bit of a pronunciation quandary.
1: It is. And I am European, so we definitely say Nice and we definitely... You know, geologically as well, we have different names for things. Like you call the last glacial maximum or glacial period uh that happened um basically from a hundred thousand years ago to ten thousand years ago, the yep. Wisconsin. Yep. And we call it the Devonian. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it, it means different things. So there's this sort of this shared language, but also just sort of like an us versus them thing from across the pond. Um <laughs> I try I try and assimilate. I uh, say grocery store instead of supermarket, but it's hard for me to do a, a hard G for sure talking about touch though I do also do a lovely thing again this works in a classroom if you bring things in or it works outdoors is I tend to start with a group circle and I find four different rocks and you start give uh, the kids are facing in hands behind their back eyes closed and you give them the rock and they have to feel it and they once they've done and they think they've got it they pass it to the person next and after it's passed like I do four different rocks I pass it like six kids we stop and then uh they face out and i put the four rocks out on a log we and i ask them which one was yours and we start off really easy with like really obviously different types of rocks i try and have one sedimentary one igneous and one metamorphic uh, and then one like in there to, to throw things out and then as they get better at it or are older students I you know you have four different metamorphic rocks that are all you know like a quartzite sandstone mix, which is where you've got this, literally looking at the, my favourite one on my windowsill, um, but where you have this like beautiful uh, sort of orange and grey stone with these white swirls through the quartz, which is where it hasn't quite fully transformed. Uh, and I give them four that are almost identical and they have to really work hard with their fingers with their sense of touch of like okay where was that ridge what shape were those bands Uh, and that can take up a long time it can be great and depends where you are but I have a spot where we're allowed to have a fire on the beach and I do this in fall we have a fire and we play the rock finding game and and the kids love it and then if they get good at it they start doing it in pairs or fours and so they get to go and choose rocks and then you know give one to their team who will try and identify it and even like you say that kind of experiential hands-on learning connects them to these inanimate objects in a way that i feel brings them to life
0: you've certainly given me a lot of inspiration for how to dig into geology pun fully intended (laughs) just before we jump into drumlin's One of the reasons I asked about whether it's nice or nice is because where I used to work at Algonquin Park, there's largely nice, but it was for the most part pronounced nice. At least that was how we were told to pronounce it in interpreting it outdoors. And there's also some granite and there's this wonderful pun play on words in an article written by dan strickland a retired chief park naturalist of algonquin and it was talking about the article was about the differences between nice and granite or nice and granite and the joke only really works if you pronounce nice as nice but the final sentence and i'm somewhat paraphrasing it but the gist of it is and this just goes to show that not all that is nice in life can be taken for granite boo <laughs> Ooh, mic drop so that's why ah, I asked about that, it. because the joke doesn't work if you pronounce it Nice, like the city in oh, southern France.
1: Yeah, maybe I, need to, I need to change it up so that I can steal some of your jokes. I mean, you are an interpreter extraordinaire. And I know before your editor today is that like, I mean, you still interpret. But looking at some of the activities you and the way that you in shared sediment in little scraps of brown paper and little cloth and things like it's pretty inspirational, too, just so you know. Oh, thank you. Before we went to Drumlin's, I did also want to say that finishing that story when we get to the riverbed, or if you're anywhere yes. where you have a valley or any kind of uh, these large-scale landforms, if you can get up high and have a look, and I talk about the fact that this valley didn't exist, right? It was all made of rock, and that the valley was created by water and for us it was definitely water melting out of glaciers um, that created this and that whole valley as well like the depth of the height of that would have been filled with ice at one point um, glaciers carving out slowly um, but another thing that i constantly learning and it but it's a really important thing for me is the indigenous perspectives of how these landforms and great landscapes came to be yes. because where I am, I'm at the intersection of, of four different First Nations the Tanaha, the Shwemet, the Okanagan Silks, and Sinaics. um And each has their own sort of creation story of this area. And um, I'm not going to paraphrase, but you can find them online and they have been shared openly. But um, to do with Coyote and uh, the woman he fell in love with, and she creates the river, the Columbia River, and calves. And I just think that there's so much there that is so beautiful and so deeply connected to the landscapes around that if you can uh, and are teaching on the land about geology connecting with a creation story uh, from an indigenous perspective is so important and um, a beautiful way to engage with any audience uh, when you're outside
0: for sure and this shameless plug for earthy chats the other podcast that jade and i co-host But we've uh, spoken with some uh, members of some of the First Nations that you talked about. And we also, with Green Teacher, had a webinar with Chief Joe Pierre from the Tanaka Nation. And the perspective we've been told in our various discussions about sharing Indigenous stories, particularly if you're of a different Indigenous nation, if you're non-Indigenous, is just basic courtesy. Ask for permission and cite your source. Stories are meant to be shared. This is what Joe Pierre has said, is that a story is a gift. It's meant to be passed on. And as long as you've gotten the permission and you say, you know, where it's from, who's told it to you, then it can be a very enriching, you could almost say necessary part of these interpretive programs.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And with some of the older students, I mean, I'm just reading a book of Snipe stories at the moment that some of the stories are quite, quite dark and stormy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's some quite complex um, and like, intense interactions between the early animals. And it's, you know, engaging an older audience, a lot of what we do, you know, create wonder and inspire the little ones. They are just like, oh, cool adventure. Oh, look <laughs> at that shiny thing. Um, you know, we get grade 10, 11 12s, and they're sort of like, oh, field trip. I'd rather be listening to iTunes or whatever at home. Um, that some of these, you know, these stories and these legacies really can engage that audience. And I think, yeah, that's the biggest things uh, about rocks that I love, despite the fact, yeah, they don't move and they don't shout and they don't do a little dance they are so appealing through different layers of complexity to different ages and just yeah teach about rocks because they rock
0: there it is i knew it was gonna happen
1: <laughs> i wanted a better one than that i feel like i'd sort of in my mind like a couple so when you're not trying they just like boom but yeah i don't have the same like fantastic, fantastic uh, abilities as you do yeah.
0: Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishnabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty.
2: All right, it's hand lens time. This is the fun part where we get to see the minerals up close. Quartz, feldspar, yep, this is definitely granite.
0: So the reason we want to get into the whole drumlin situation is is this is very personal to me because I grew up on a drumlin and I don't have the luxury of having any billion year old Precambrian rocks at the surface. I have to drive a bit north to see those. I'm in an area that's dominated by glacial deposits from the Devonian slash Wisconsin glaciation period, and there are drumlins all around me. Yet In your studies you've come across some conflicting opinions about drumlins and who doesn't like conflict is the starting point of any good story a hero's journey so (laughs) what is the deal with drumlin drama
1: the drumlin drama and it is um i love it um and i think this is so exciting and could be the kind of thing that you could delve into again with some older students doing some kind of Uh, sort of research project or uh, some sort of debate. Um, You could tie it into social studies that way. You could talk about uh, the history of science. You could talk about all kinds of different things, but like, let's sort of like back it up a second. So as I was talking, you know, glaciers and waters uh, and wind uh, create landforms. Uh, they, They alter the landscape around us. So normally, Um, With glacial environments, we have like two very sort of defined groups of things we have erosional landforms created by eroding of things the taking away of things so large, like glacial sort of big u-shaped valleys um you can have little things like grooves or something we call striations which is where there's like a rock sticking out the bottom of the glacier and as it slides across the bedrock it scrapes a line and you can find these in a lot of like post-glacial landscapes in places like scotland or wales if you're ever across that way lots of big rocks with these sort of like grooves cut into them in these long lines and that line tells you the direction and the flow of the glacier so that's erosional on the other hand we have these technically depositional or deposited landforms which are things like moraines okay so these big walls uh, they can either be lateral going the same direction as the glacier that would like be the edges of where it was or we have something called a terminal moraine which is like the sort of front face of the glacier as if it was pushing as it retreats it loses uh, sort of drops its load and it creates this big wall at the end okay but that moraine is is deposited there as the glacier either pushes it up and then recedes away okay so erosional right. depositional until the tramlins come along now you've got google this um and this is again um another way get your kids in it get them looking at google earth from the from the sky these drumlins, they call them swarms. I like that swarms of drumlins. Yeah, like These bees. landforms are, yeah, are in the thousands, and and they cover much of northeast of um, Canada and, and North America. Right. So, um, underneath where the Laurentide ice sheet was, like the largest ice sheet covered. North America, um but all over there, sort of where you're living uh, in Ontario, uh, they're into Alberta. Um, there's a bunch in Europe as well, in different places. But you guys are like the creme de la creme of drumlins. <laughs> and what's interesting is, before I lived in Canada, when I lived in the UK, I studied Canadian drumlins. And you know, now I live here, and it's pretty inspirational that I can just see them. Like if I have to drive to Calgary, you know, they're by the side of the highway one. Yeah mind-blowing for me, because this is like, again, the creme de la creme of uh, geographical landforms. Anyway, drumlins, for those who are the uninitiated, they are like these giant sort of egg-shaped hills. Okay, so imagine uh, if you are lying an egg, Down in front of you, you've got the fat rounded bottom going to a bit of a point. And if you look at it from the side, it does the same thing. It starts off fatter and then it slopes down to the tail. And these are drumlins. They can be up to like a kilometre long. They can be a few hundred metres long. They can be 10 metres high. They can be 100 metres high. These landforms are uh, aligned with the glacial travel flow. Right. So you have the blunt end uh, where the direction of the glacier was coming from tapering off. But they are they ubiquitous, they're everywhere here and they all line up together, and nobody in the scientific world can make a consensus on how they are formed. And this is the Drumlin drama. So are they erosional in that lots of sediment that had been eroded by meltwater was then deposited in these hills? Turns out not. Okay. When uh something comes from a glacier and it drops sediment glacial till or glacial sediment isn't sorted right so all the big bits and the small rocks and the
0: yeah, it's a mess. tiny
1: pebbles all it's a mess they just fall together okay and this is the thing you can look at again on a beach uh whenever something is created by a fluvial or a river flowing water origin the the bits get sorted okay like on a river F-scur. can carry Exactly. So upstream, the river has more energy, okay, and it can carry bigger rocks. As it slows normally by gravity, right, it's getting into a flatter area, it loses energy and it can't carry the big rocks anymore. So it drops them first. And then as it flows, it loses more energy and it drops the middle sized rocks until it can only carry the tiny bits of sediment that make up beaches, for example. So they dug in, they use ground penetrating radar and augers, and they're going into the drumlins and they're like, hmm. This is not sorted material, this is glacial till. So these were not caused by carving out the existing landscape, they were brought with the glacier. Okay, right, that's step one. But then they cannot decide on whether they are created, I mean, we now know they're created underneath the glaciers. So, you imagine these sort of giant landforms happening, but is it where some liquid water was running and it carved around a massive sediment? Or what did it happen as the glacier was melting, and it was enormous floods of water that flooded and just then dropped all of this material at one point, where they created gent like gradually over time? Or did they all happen together because they're so uniform across large scale like areas? Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling again. Oh, this they is exciting! Decide, <laughs> and they're doing models in laboratories, trying to. Uh, sort of reconstructs the environment. But the pressure that exists underneath a full-size glacier as it's travelling is like, you know, being deep, deep under the sea. Like, it's extremely difficult to recreate. And, yes, the bottom of glaciers do always have a small amount of liquid water because the pressure creates a certain amount of heat and that's why it's enabled to slide on its bed surface but the mechanisms are still not understood and when i was at university and i was just saying like when we were going to talk about this i went back to sort of look if there was any sort of more recent research that i hadn't read yet and there's not but my fantastic lecturers um university professors that sort of wrote the book uh, on this they're on the sort of uh glacial uh slow built up over time with small amounts of liquid water where the sort of base of the glacier was saturated with sediment and basically became too much and it sort of dropped slowly and slowly and slowly and then the water had to create a space around the sediment mound and so it's moving so you've got this sort of i'm doing lots of hand actions of course that you yeah i listeners love it cannot. Um, so you imagine like you've dropped an orange the sediment underneath the glacier is like a big orange and all of a sudden the weight of it is just like gets stuck against something and then everything behind it is trying to move around it and the water the liquid water starts smoothing the outside smoothing smoothing going around the orange over the top of the orange and then tapers off where there's less friction on the downside or lee side and um, so those those my professors are under that but we've helped some people with like biblical flood theories like there's all kinds of stuff going on and i uh, have read some when you peer review when you publish uh, research um it goes it's called peer reviewed for a reason right it goes to other experts in the mm-hmm. field and they judge the science they you know go through it with a fine tooth comb to make sure that you know they push every button to make sure that you have uh, been extremely careful with your research uh, and not making assumptions of things uh, that aren't true and then you're allowed to retort if you know people say publish something then you can write these things and if anyone was bothered to look into sort of google scholar and have a look there's some quite heated debates about the old drum lens it has created somewhat of a drama in the glaciological world and that could be quite fun for students to find as well <laughs>
0: Well, there's the segue, right? And that this is a perfect place to end off is we talk so much about inquiry-based learning and how that's foundational to all types of learning, whether it's indoor, outdoor, land-based, whatever. Often it starts with an overarching inquiry question. And I think there's a lot in there with the Drumlin story, the yet-to-be-written or agreed-upon Drumlin story for such an overarching inquiry question, particularly for secondary, post-secondary students. So... This serves as a call to action. See what you can sort out with finishing the Drumlin story.
1: Yeah, pose a question. Give your kids, you know, if they're in their class, give them a computer and get them searching. Uh, And very quickly they will, you know, build their own knowledge base and, yeah, give them a couple of options. Get them to pick the thing that inspires them most. And, yeah, rocks are cool and fun, even though they don't run very fast.
0: Not that we can observe anyways. Well, this has been very fun as we've dug into geological time, which I still don't really know if I can quite conceive. I get it intellectually, (laughs) but I don't think I've internalized it. I don't know if any of us really truly can, but you've done your absolute best to try to get us at least part of the way there.
1: Thank you for having me. I always very much enjoy chatting with you, indeed, even uh, when we're earthy chatting. But yes, thank you for letting me ramble on about my passion project
0: of course and we will chat again for the next earthy chat coming next year even though we're recording here on january 31st 2001 next year is in a few hours so we'll I end with it. a bad joke see you next year ha ha
1: ha, ha. <laughs> oldest <laughs> joke ever
0: <laughs> but the best
1: so bad yeah brilliant terrible but brilliant
2: it looks like there's some mica in here too if we're lucky, maybe we'll find some stacked sheets of it at the next rock phase. For now, let's look at these tiny ferns growing from the cracks where soil has accumulated. Does anyone know when ferns first appeared in the fossil record? Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnessi Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon.
1: Um, I was actually there just before uh, Aishvi um, Yerkel yeah, exploded. We thought we were going to get trapped. We really wanted to stay there, but we sadly got out before they shut all the air traffic from the plumes of volcanic yeah. dust that it was emitting. Very sad. We weren't allowed to drink any of the water uh, because it was being polluted with sulfur from everything. But yeah, anyway, And you can smell it. <laughs> you can smell it for sure.